Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It became kind of like an Alvin Lucier experiment where we were just like constantly degrading the audio quality, but getting more and more of the resonant frequencies of this concrete hallway. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining us this week is Brian Cook. You may know him as the bassist in heavy bands Russian Circles and Sumac. This conversation focuses on his first solo effort under the name Torment and Glory, which was released in August. We left a note with an apology draws from a wide music palette of folk tradition, country storytelling, kraut rock, with moments of sludgy distortion that transport the listener to a series of moments in Brian's life. Our conversation also touches on the construction of the album, how Sergeant House became involved in the release, social unrest, closing on a discussion about Russian Circle's recent brewery and coffee roasting collaborations. Brian created an exceptional playlist to accompany this episode that I've really been digging since our conversation. I've left his explanation about the list in the episode notes, along with a link to the playlist, which is hosted on Spotify. Let's dive and get heavy. Brian Cook, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I uh, was doing research, and as anyone who does research should do, the first place I went to was your Facebook page, because that's, you know, the best place to go for information, right? And um, there was an image that struck me there, and it's your cover photo, and it shows a, a pretty famous sign in Christiania in Copenhagen that says, you are now leaving the EU. Um, I know that you may have put that up a little while ago, but I'm kind of curious about that. Um, I have so I have a good amount of understanding of that, and I've been to that place before. And I'm kind of curious as to like what struck you about that sign or that sort of moment in time. I mean, I'm I'm not an active Facebook user, <laughs> so I want to put I want to put that out there right now. Um, I haven't I don't think I've updated it in years at this point. But uh, yeah, I mean that image. I'm not even sure when I took that photo. Christiania, for uh, people listening to this that might not be familiar, is it's a little neighborhood in Copenhagen in Denmark that used to be military barracks, and uh, at some point, you know the military scale back and they just became these sort of empty quarters that were in the city center and uh, squatters moved in. And at some point the local government decided that they would allow Christiania to be kind of a social experiment. And uh, they let it be sort of its own little autonomous zone within the city. You know, I think they have like their own school and their own, you know, sanitation department and all this stuff. So it is kind of like its own little somewhat self-sufficient community uh, and has its own laws. So, I mean, it's, it was sort of known for a while for having uh, an open air uh, weed and mushroom market. So it's kind of famous for that. And, you know, that kind of adds a little layer of lawlessness to, to the vibe of it, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always just found that kind of thing to be interesting, you know, these social experiments and people kind of, you know, trying different modes of living. I think that's always kind of fascinating to see how, how it works out. A whole lot of deeper meaning beyond that. I just find it kind of interesting as a, as a social experiment. Yeah, I, I think that it is uh, it is an interesting part of the city and, uh, you know, to have had a, a pretty rich uh, military past going back centuries and then to have sort of been taken over by neighbors and squatters and like the hippie movement and to have gone through all the sorts of different social uh, iterations that occurred in the, in the late 20th century uh, makes it very unique in Scandinavia uh, where you have like a lot of sort of, there's a different kind of like a uh, conformity and it's different from the, it's different from everything around it. And it's been embraced in kind of a funny way. Um, 
I think uh, I had a way of tying this into Torment and Glory, and I lost it. So we're just going <laughs> to. I think the idea was, uh, in all honesty, that you know some of the things that you sort of were talking about, or that I was reading about the album in the lyrics, and talking about squatting and uh, about sort of uh, mischief from the past, and you know, uh, living uh, and sort of understand coming to understand as an adult things that you did in the past. I think the link was uh, the link was somewhere in there, but I do want to dive into that album uh, here. And so it came out, uh, We Left a Note with an Apology came out on August 27th. The album has long roots and uh, it also sort of draws on a wider musical palette, folk tradition, country storytelling, kraut rock. Uh, It's a, a wide and really, really awesome sort of expression. I've enjoyed listening to it. Um, and so I, you know, can you start by sort of, uh, walking us through some of the early moments or some of the, the inspiration points that got you started on the journey that became that album? Sure. I mean, um, I'll help you out here with doing some of the tying in maybe with the uh, Christiania thing, because it wasn't necessarily intentional, but I, I was raised as a military kid. Uh, my dad was in the army, so we did a lot of, of moving around and stuff. And I was, um, you know, brought up sort of within the military culture. And, uh, but, you know, I've always been more of a, I guess, a hippie at heart. So maybe on some level, the uh, Christiania photo was some subconscious connection to that. Where I was like, eh. <laughs> yeah, military is a part of my life, but that's not, um, you know, that's not who I am as a person. Um, I think a lot of the torment and glory stuff, uh, stems back to an interest in, in early like American protest music. Um, because I, I really got involved in music through, through punk, you know, and for me, um, well, I wasn't born with a minor threat album in my hand or anything, you know, it was hearing bands like minor threat and dead Kennedys and stuff that made music feel like something that, an everyday person could do, you know, it felt within, I don't know, you know, I, I came of age during hair metal and all that stuff. So, you know, hearing Eddie Van Halen and people like that, it's like, okay, well that's, you obviously need to just be born with a certain skill set in order to be able to play like that, or you just need discipline that doesn't exist within, within my personality. So, um, hearing, you know, these really simple songs that sounded like they were recorded really cheaply. It was like, Oh, like people, normal people can do this. Average people can do this. Like if you feel a compulsion to write a song, you don't need to be some sort of virtuoso in order to share it with the world. So punk was kind of my entryway into that, but almost on the heels of that was, was, was protest music and folk songs. So it was, you know, Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, Phil Oaks and, uh, Billy Bragg. And, uh, I, I, to me it was almost kind of the same, music it was just it lacked the electricity you know because it was like Woody Guthrie said all you needed was two chords and the rest was showing off so it's like oh yeah that's like so many punk songs that I like and it's you know just a handful of chords a rudimentary skill set but you know a voice that had something to say and that was that was the allure for me and uh eventually that kind of led into you know more and I started leading into an interest in things like John Fahey or Robbie Basho, um, you know, artists that were interested in the, in the instrument as opposed to the voice, um, or, or the political statement. And it also led into, you know, an appreciation for types of country music, you know, so, you know, I love the requisite Hank Williams and Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and all that stuff. But even, you know, even some of the more Nashville kind of glitzy stuff like George Jones, I'm a, I'm a fan of, you know, I love Tammy. I love Dolly, you know, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I like that sort of homespun, um, immediacy that comes with that stuff. And the fact that you can kind of have a song and it's just an acoustic guitar and a voice, I think has always been really appealing to me you know especially i think coming from the punk angle where it's like you know the ability to make music on as few resources as possible is really 
appealing. Um, the idea that, you know, in a post-apocalyptic landscape, you can still <laughs> play an acoustic star and sing is really appealing to me. Um, that's sort of been another thing that's been on my mind a lot in the last year where it feels like the world's on the verge of collapse so many times. It's like, well, might be, it might be good to have a skill set where I can still make music, you know, with just something that doesn't rely on fossil fuels or anything. So, so yeah, that's kind of where it all stems from. But, you know, I'm, I'm a 44 year old guy that's been actively buying records, you know, since I was nine and you know there's a lot of different kinds of stuff that i like and a lot of weird random musical obsessions and i wasn't necessarily interested in making a a hodgepodge of all that stuff with the record but uh you know i think a lot of that stuff just kind of creeps in on its own so there's a there's an interesting sort of uh aesthetic and then story behind uh behind the presentation of this album as well, uh, rooted in, in experience of listening to a Bruce Springsteen record. Uh, and I think that, uh, and I would love for you to kind of describe that experience a little bit. Uh, but I do think that the album does sort of effectively capture, uh, some of the aesthetic of an experience of hearing a record in a specific condition. Uh, do you mind sort of telling us a little bit about that, uh, that story? I'm not a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, but you know, Nebraska is sort of the one record where that one I, I, I latched on to. Um, and I think a lot of it's just because when it comes to that sort of style of songwriting, like the, the folk sort of Americana uh, songwriting art, you know, once people start putting too much stuff on top of it, it, it kind of starts to lose me. You know, I, I like, I like it to be kind of bare bones. And when you start adding like gospel choirs and, you know, a ton of additional instrumentation, it's, it, it loses some of its, its, I don't know, its intimacy and vulnerability to me. Nebraska was always the one Springsteen record was like, well, I like that one. And I'd heard it a bunch of times and, you know, owned a copy of it and enjoyed it. But there was a night where I was uh, down in Tacoma for a show and I was staying at a friend's house and, you know, we were in our twenties. So we were up late hanging out and partying and everyone kind of went to bed and I decided to stay up long enough to listen to Nebraska before turning in for the night because they had a copy on their turntable. And so I put it on, but I don't think they'd actually played the record in, weeks or months because it was just so dusty that the needle would just skip across the record and each side of the record would be maybe like five minutes long just because it was only occasionally <laughs> catching the grooves but it was doing it in a way that it was really kind of haunting and, and cool sounding where it was you know these big balls of static and then all of a sudden a little bit of acoustic guitar and, and voice would kind of creep in and then the static would take over again and then another song fragment would pop out and it was, it was kind of like driving and listening to the car stereo and being sort of stuck between stations where you just get little snippets of, of audio between the static. It was, it was kind of like that for whatever reason in that moment and in that headspace, it, it felt like, it's like, Oh, this is, this is what a record should sound like. This is just like, so like weird and distant and like lonely sounding. And it's like, you know, you're hearing this voice that's trying to like rise through all the, all the noise and it's, you're only catching fragments of it. And, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, it, it hit me in a weird way where I just kept listening to it over and over again. You know, you know, again, it was one of those things that was so dusty. It was only like five minutes per side. It's just, it's just the needles gliding across the whole LP, but it was such a cool sound that I was determined to figure out a way to replicate it. And, uh, I spent a while trying to do it and I just, I never managed to be able to like harness that same, the same sound quality. And it might be a thing where I just wasn't, you know, I was certainly inebriated that night. So maybe, you know, it being two o'clock in the morning and being in an altered headspace had something to do with it. But, you know, I wrote a bunch of songs that I thought could maybe be suited to that treatment and, I couldn't get the treatment right. So the songs just kind of stayed in my head and there's these little fragments that I would always play on acoustic guitar when I was home or if I was trying out guitars at guitar shops or 
if I was trying to warm up before a show and yeah, it's just been a long time of having these ideas and not knowing what to do with them. And finally had all this downtime. It's like, I should just, I should just record them and get them out of my head so I can work and focus on other things. And that was what the torment and glory record turned out to be. So it's sort of interesting, uh, thinking about, you know, when you hear things in, you know, any kind of inebriated state, you, uh, what you hear gets mixed up with how you're feeling and how you're feeling is, is altered. And so there's never an entirely like a replication of those things. Right. But in the pursuit of trying to capture that in some way, were there, uh, whether it came to like sort of music production or sound design or like understanding of how to recreate that sound, were, was there were there any sort of like uh, specific artists or even recollections from what you had recorded um, in the past with Russian Circles or with Sumac that you sort of were able to sort of tap into? One of the songs, one of the first ones I wrote um, for the project uh, actually wound up being on a Russian Circles album. Um, the last song on the Empress record is called Praise Be Man. And that was uh, was recorded at home on a four track. And it was originally intended to be a part of this project. But, you know, I, I'd hit so many snags with, with trying to get that sound I was describing that, you know, I, I'd sort of given up on it. And I just sent the song to Mike and Dave, you know, just to be like, hey, here's the thing I, I did, you know. It's not really a Russian circle song, but I might want to hear it. And they both really liked it. So we figured we'd try and figure out a way to incorporate it into the record. And what we did was um, we were recording at a friend's studio, which is in a big warehouse in Chicago. And there was a big uh, concrete hallway outside of the studio. And we set up a couple speakers and we played this four track recording of the song really loud in the hallway and set up mics to record these speakers playing the song. So we recorded that and then we took that audio and played it through the speakers in the hallway and recorded that. And we just kind of kept doing it. So it became kind of like an Alvin Lucier experiment where we were just like constantly degrading the audio quality, but getting more and more of the, the resonant frequencies of this concrete hallway. And then we wound up just mixing all these different takes together at different levels. And so at different points in the song, like the resonant frequencies kind of take over and then the actual original audio is more prominent in other sections. And that kind of seemed like the closest approximation to what I was trying to do that I was going to get. So after that, I was like, okay, well, I sort of, I sort of did the thing I wanted to do and it's on a record. So, you know, I think that kind of quenched the the thirst for the project for a little while you know i think there's been other things throughout the russian circles discography and and the sumac discography where you know i i've learned tricks that wound up showing up on the torment and glory record uh guitar treatments that wound up on the record and maybe even just a sense of uh knowing how the process worked and, and knowing how to take risks and experiment with things. Cause a lot of the record, it was, I would just create tracks and just improvise over it and see what worked and what didn't. And a lot of those tracks turned into, you know, final takes. And, uh, it's, I think one of the big lessons from playing in bands is, is trying to figure out how to find a good balance between, um, getting the best, possible take and performance out of something that you can, but also leaving room for things to be imperfect. And, uh, you know, sometimes the right take isn't the perfect take. It's the one that just has the right feeling behind it. And, you know, you can lose that really quickly. There's a lot of stuff on the record that's a little sloppy and a little raw, but that it felt like it was the right take and the one to keep. So that was, that was a big takeaway from, you know, years of, writing and recording with other projects. And that definitely does sound like it's also in some of the tradition of uh, folk and song and some of the songwriting traditions and the punk tradition, certainly uh, that, you know, you had kind of mentioned earlier. Um, you also 
had an experience in 2019 where you lost your voice, which fucking terrifies the shit out of me. Oh my God. So like how, uh, like tell us a little bit about that and about the sort of rehabilitation process. Cause like, I, I don't know. Sorry. That's just like freaks me out. (laughs) it It was super weird. Um, I was flying out to Chicago um, to start a tour. Uh, we were doing, Russian Circles was doing like a two-week thing with with Gouge Away from Florida. And uh, the night before I flew out, we had a friend's band staying at the house. And you know, I was up kind of late having beers with them, but not many beers and not very late. You know, it was It actually felt like kind of a mellow night. But the next morning I woke up and had kind of a scratchy throat and, you know, felt like maybe I was getting laryngitis. And then, you know, by the next day, my voice was gone and no other symptoms, you know, no, like no cold or flu symptoms whatsoever. Just like literally no voice and did a whole tour with no voice. And it was kind of annoying because it's, you know, you're in a loud rock club, so <laughs> you can't <laughs> talk to anyone. So that was a, a thing that happened. And, uh, after two weeks and getting home, you know, I went to a doctor and they ran a scope down my nose and saw that one of my vocal cords wasn't moving. So if you see your throat and your, and your vocal cords, it's weird. It's like a little, I don't know. Actually, I don't want to describe it because it's kind of gross, but basically you have like these two like lip looking things and one of them was vibrating. The other one was just totally static. So, you know, I had, some other tests run to make sure there wasn't like a growth or a tumor or something like on the vocal cord that was cutting off the nerves. And that wound up not being the case. And at that point, the doctors were like, Oh yeah, well, this is just a thing that happens sometimes. You know, it could come back tomorrow. It could come back in a couple months. It could never come back. You know, there's just, there's nothing we can really do about it. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, all right, well maybe a, maybe a, tumor would have been better because then that's at least like a thing that can be dealt with (laughs) or or there's a little more certainty with that than maybe next week maybe never maybe six months yeah i mean i'm glad i did i'm definitely glad i didn't have a tumor but Mm -hmm. you know it was definitely like a weird thing i was like okay well now this just might be permanent yeah it was like six months of no voice and it slowly came back over the course of a couple weeks uh yeah, at, at about the six month mark, <clears throat> and it's still not fully back to normal. And uh, I got played a couple shows this weekend, and I wasn't even singing or anything like that on stage. But by by the end of the night, like my voice was definitely quieter, and I was having to exert a lot more effort to to be heard. So it's still uh, not fully recovered, but I'm able to do things like this now, and I was able to make a record where I sing on it. And so it's definitely, definitely gotten better, but yeah, but the record was in large part, it was, you know, a way of trying to, to rehabilitate it. So I feel a little bad making listeners have to go through that, ex- that experience of, <laughs> of me retraining my voice <laughs> in real time. But, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was part of the process. It was just seeing if I could do it and trying to build back my, what little, seeing uh, capabilities I had to begin with. Well, certainly no better way to kind of uh, add the torment and also hardship to the record than by uh, bring listeners along on that journey. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, all my favorite, well, to quote David Berman from silver Jews, all my favorite singers couldn't sing. So I think there was always like this reassurance for me where it's like, well, you know, Bob Dylan, David Berman, you know, these, these guys, like they don't have, golden pipes you know they're they're froggy voiced and pitchy all over the place but you know there's there's something commanding in what they do and so hopefully i I just had to kind of lay into it with confidence and hope that i could do my own thing along those lines Mm -hmm. and you recorded the bass guitar obviously acoustic baritone there's a number of different instruments that you uh, performed on this record with and you also recorded it yourself. And so was there any sort of getting up to speed with home recording technology uh, in the process of constructing this album? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, originally when I first started, you know, the project, however many years ago, I wanted to do it all on my, on my cassette four track, just because that that's sort of my comfort zone, you know, and I know how that thing works and it's, there's not a lot of frills to it. I mean, there's no equalization on it whatsoever. It's just panning and levels and that's about it. And, uh, it's, it kind of quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to be adequate for, <laughs> for what I wanted to do. And so over the years, I, you know, kind of learned logic and then logic just seemed like it had too many bells and whistles. So I downgraded and learned garage band and then got comfortable enough with the garage band that I, I missed all the bells and whistles of logic. So I made the move back to that. And then with COVID happening and having all this downtime, Russian circles, just decided that we rather than putting everything on hold and resuming touring once the world opened back up and pretending like nothing ever happened, you know, we just get started on a new record and we sort of knew with me living in Seattle and Mike living in LA and Dave living in Chicago, that the likelihood of us actually being in the same room anytime over the, the course of 2020 was really unlikely. So it kind of became a thing where I needed to refamiliarize myself with logic and, and kind of get better at that skill set. And there's, you know, no better way of reacquainting than just diving in. You know, I'd, I'd read the manuals and books and how to's and watched the YouTube tutorials, but I mean, the best way for me to learn is to just do it. Part of the rationale behind the torment and glory record was, was really thinking that no one was going to hear it. And I was just making it kind of as like a little demo thing for myself and, maybe something I'd re-record later on down the line and sort of having that, like that attitude of no one's going to hear this. It doesn't matter. Just, just do it. So you have like a, a reference point, I think took a lot of the stress and second guessing off the process. So it was kind of a learning experience and, a, and an experiment that on some level was meant to prepare me for making the next Russian circles record. But, you know, it wound up being a more serious venture and, you know, I shared a couple songs with my friend Ben Chisholm. He's a much more gifted uh, home studio guy than I am. And he took the songs and mixed them and made them sound infinitely better. And it kind of turned into a serious thing. And yeah, and I was going to mention uh, Ben Chisholm uh, from Chelsea Wolf, who are also label mates of Russian Circles. Was this a matter of Kathy hearing the record as well and saying, this is awesome, I want to do it? How, how does it go from being something that's personal to something that's going to be a much more public item? Yeah, all that was kind of funny because, yeah, again, you know, these songs, I was, I, I was kind of just starting them out just to work on my voice and, you know, play guitar every day and get more familiar with Logic. And then, you know, just having the songs a bit more fleshed out in case I wanted to record them at a later point in time more professionally. So that was kind of the whole mindset. And then after I had two or three songs under my belt, I felt pretty good about them and uh, wound up chatting with Ben online over something unrelated. And he had just kind of offhand mentioned, he's like, oh yeah, if you ever need uh, need help with, with any of the stuff you're recording at home, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to lend an ear or, you know, help mix things. And I was like, well, that." that I'm going to actually careful what you ask for. Cause I'm going to take you up on that offer. And then I sent him a couple songs and he was really uh, positive about them and, you know, really transformed them. And, you know, I mean, I think he, you know, I sent him the first song and he had a mix the next day. So it was, you know, he was super quick on the turnaround. And I think just having another set of ears hear it and having that, additional enthusiasm was uh was really important and uh really kind of changed the the scope of the project and then at that point i was like well maybe i'll just turn it into a thing where i, I make some cassette tapes and sell it on Bandcamp. and i, I really didn't want to make it a big deal just because I, I don't want any expectations attached to it but by the time it was done and ben had mixed everything you know i think ben was kind of the big motivator and uh he encouraged me to share it with kathy and the funny thing about Kathy, Kathy absolutely rules, but I also know what Kathy likes and what Kathy doesn't like. And one thing Kathy doesn't like is she doesn't like getting solo records from, from people. <laughs> Everyone has a solo project. 
there's too many of them. They never want to tour on them. You know, they want me to put it out. And it's just like, it's so much work on my end. And like the artist, it never goes anywhere. So it's like, I hate solo projects. So I, I sent her an email was being like, Hey, uh, I know you hate solo projects. We've had this conversation many times. Uh, but I also wouldn't feel right. Like putting out a record on my own and not telling you about it. So here's the record I made Ben mixed it. I'm not asking you to put it out. I'm just, I'm just going to do a small run of cassettes, but you're my manager and you should know that is the thing I'm doing. And she responded. She's like, ah, cassettes are so dumb. Like <laughs> it's really hitting you know? all the marks for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't get why people do it. You know, it's like the poorest audio quality. Like you should just listen to it online at that point. Blah, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, yeah, I know. I, this, this is all stuff that we've talked about before, but I'm just, just letting you know. And then, you know, like a day later, it's like, okay, the, so what we're actually going to do, we're just going to put this out and we're going to do 500 copies on vinyl. And, you know, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, oh, you're putting out the record. Okay. Well, I thought, okay, that's great. Because <laughs> I really didn't want to have to like figure out all the packaging and, you know, order fulfillment for a bunch of cassette tapes of you want, you want to handle all that. that. That'd be, that'd be great. I'm sure more people will hear it this way too. So I think that's a bonus, but I still am a little shy about it. So so yeah, that, that makes me slightly more nervous about the release, but I was, I was very excited that Kathy was excited about it. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy that Sergeant House is putting it out, but it, it was a kind of funny development and, and path to get there. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Brian Cook in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows such as Yellow Eyes and Immortal Bird, at the Empty Bottle on November 5th at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. I want to thank everyone who donated to Sam's GoFundMe initiative. If you've not already, please check out the link in the episode notes. We are planning an in-person fundraising event for later this year, which I'll announce in due course. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Brian Cook. I'm, I'm a big music consumer. Like I buy, I buy records, I buy tapes, and... Uh, I always try to think about my own work in the same way that I think about the stuff that I'm interested in and I check out. So it's, you know, I agree cassettes are not a great format, but I still buy tapes because they're cheap, you know, they're easy to manufacture. And it's, it's that whole thing where, you know, someone being like, Hey, like check out my SoundCloud link. I don't know. Having someone like foist their music on you is never like super exciting. Like it's hard to rally the interest if, uh, something feels like an obligation or a, you know, like a, a task or an assignment to check out. And conversely, if something feels like it's really private and hidden and sort of uh, secret, then uh, I'm automatically more intrigued. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, especially in the metal culture where it's like, Oh, like this band only put out 20 cassettes and no one actually knows where they're from. And you can't even read the band logo because it's indecipherable. Like just like scribbling. Like to me, that's like, super fascinating so i think on some level I'm, I'm drawn to that thing where it's yeah whether it's modesty or if it's just you know artists that deliberately kind of try to operate below the radar i think i always find that more interesting than someone that's trying to appeal to everyone and check off all the boxes for everything you know there's a certain level of discovery that people really enjoy when they're hearing something that's private or that is that sort of, like you were saying, indiscernible logo, like you're, you're kind of getting a piece of someone's beliefs or some, or like their, uh, their personal life or something. And I, I think people tend to enjoy the process of discovery quite a bit. Yeah. I was going to ask about sort of, uh, a little bit about some of the, the lyrics without going into as much detail about them, but just sort of about the process of, putting together uh, lyrics for this. One of the things that like I was thinking about when it comes to 2020 was in Chicago. And I know in Seattle, there was the similar sort of protests in Seattle. You also had like an autonomous area. Uh, it was, you know, um, something that was covered in the national media as far as uh, the impact that the protests made and the sort of what they did to take a part of the city. And I wanted to know if that was sort of occurring along with the writing of the lyrics of this and if that had any impact on you, whether 
it comes out in the lyrics or whether it's like for you personally as well. Cause it certainly uh, had a big impact on how we sort of talked about some of these things that we did as kids um, in my friend circle and of people my age. Certainly. I mean, I think uh, 2020, you know, aside from just the, the isolation and the hiatus of the music industry being a catalyst for home recording, you know, beyond even that, I think just the general reckoning that I think we've all gone through or that I hope everyone's gone through in the last year definitely played a big part in setting the tone for the record. You know, a lot of the songs uh, already had lyrics, like No Big Crime. I, I, I mean, that one's had the lyrics have been done for 10 years or so at this point, even longer. Other songs, you know, there was ideas or snippets, but, you know, things were kind of unfinished and uh when i started really buckling down and getting kind of everything finalized lyric wise i really wanted there to be a cohesive thread that ran through everything and one of the ideas i kind of had was was trying to have a, a whole album that was just sort of about america but not in a not definitely not in a like patriotic way but also not in a way that was just about criticizing it just because I felt like there's like such a polarization right now where it's like you either have people that are like nationalist assholes or you just have people that want to burn everything down. <laughs> and it's like maybe like a record that's just sort of about like, this is what it means to be an American, not like in any sort of, you know, bloated, overly optimistic way, but also not in a way that's like self-flagellating. But I kind of decided that didn't really work. <laughs> I didn't really know how to navigate that in a way where I didn't feel like I was coming off in a centrist way. And so it, it I think the the reckoning of the last year really turned into more of like a, a thing where it's like, I'm a white man, I'm, I'm gay. So, I, you know, I think I have a bit of an outsider perspective on things in that regard. But overall, it's like, I definitely have, you know, had to rethink the way everything works in this world and, you know, how privilege plays into things. And like, you know, I think being a punk kid and being someone that was in the, the, the political side of punk music, I think there's always been this sort of acknowledgement that America is sort of inherently racist and that we haven't managed to really get past that. I think even sort of having that acknowledgement from my youth, it didn't always play out into like a really personal reconciliation with that. So I think a lot of this record turned into being sort of an examination of, of rebelliousness and that sort of general like punk behavior that so often gets sort of categorized as being like revolutionary in some way. And then sort of really looking at that and being like, no, like you're just like a white male that was angry (laughs) and like confused and really wanted to belong somewhere, but didn't want to belong, you know, with the Boy Scouts or with the football team. You, you still wanted your tribe, but you wanted a different tribe. And like, how did that affect your behavior? And how was that maybe in some way also toxic in the way all kinds of tribalism is? So that that wound up being the theme of the record. And it was just like, you know, things like uh, No Big Crime being sort of a, an examination of you know, shoplifting. And I had tons of friends that shoplifted and they're just like, yeah, this is how you stick it to the man. You know, like we don't steal from mom and pop stores. We steal from, you know, major retailers, like big boxes, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's, you're still, you're just, it's just greed. It's still just another form of like consumption that, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't happen. So it's, it's not revolutionary, you know, or, you know, the burning car, the opening song is about me and some friends setting a car on fire. And it was, you know, an abandoned car. So that there's no, no victim involved. It was just like a, Hey, let's see if we can set a car on fire and what that would feel like. And now I look back on it and it's like, why, <laughs> you know, what, what did it was fun. Like it was definitely a thrill, you know, it definitely got the adrenaline going through the veins, but like there was no consequence for it. And even if we had gotten caught, there probably would have been no consequence, but would that have been the case if we hadn't been three white kids, you know, the whole record's kind of, about that. And it's just sort of an examination of my own history. A lot of like heavily fictionized, but you know, just sort of a reflection on, on what I thought was rebellion 
as a young adult or as a teenager and now sort of re-examining it as an old guy and, and being like, no, that's, that wasn't overthrowing the modern paradigm. It wasn't upsetting <laughs> the status quo in any way. It was just, you were a scared, lost teenager just trying to figure out a way in the world. And that's all it was. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, the, everything that happened in 2020 certainly made, uh, made me in a number of other folks that I was kind of, that I'm friends with, think about some of those same things. It is interesting. I'm just thinking there's like a lot of different sorts of tie-ins to the types of music that you were talking about and how patriotism can play a part in that and how many of them may have had different ideas of what patriotism is and what it means to be uh, someone who, you know, believes in a, believes in a place, but that comes out in so many different ways and what like group belonging really is. I think 2020 really brought a, a lot of that to the forefront in a lot of different ways for people. It's like a thing where I'm a homeowner now and I, I love my neighborhood. You know, it's like, I, I love the street that I live on. I love my neighborhood. It's, it's a very diverse neighborhood. It's, you know, working families, but, you know, it's a very progressive neighborhood with all walks of life. And I'm very proud of being a Seattleite. I think Seattle's a great city. You know, it's, I think it's a, as far as major cities go, it's a very progressive city. It could be more progressive, but it's still in a good place. You know, I love the Northwest. Like I love the climate and I love the scenery and I love the combination of the outdoors and, you know, the urban centers. And so it's like, you know, you keep zooming out and it's like, at some point it's like, and then we have America. How do I feel about America? <laughs> I don't feel great about America. I want to feel great about America, but I don't. It'd be great if we could get to a place where we feel good about America, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe that just doesn't happen. Maybe, I don't know that, that there's that level of reckoning where it's like, I, I want to feel a commonality with, uh, other Americans, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think most Americans feel commonality with other Americans. I think it's a very divided country right now. And that's, that's tough. Gotta localize and look to your, your neighbors, you know? Yeah. I mean, you do always have Cascadia, right? But then you, uh, you travel around and, you know, that's something you do for a living as well as you go on tour. And maybe you haven't been out for a little while doing a ton of shows, but soon enough, uh, soon enough you will be. So just kind of curious as to, you were just mentioning doing some shows and now you have, uh, you know, some shows with Russian circles in October, uh, presumably more thereafter. Uh, how do you feel about getting, uh, getting back on the road and uh, going back to sort of traveling in that way and communicating through music again in front of people. Well, it, it was definitely really nice to play shows this weekend. Uh, it was, it felt really good. It felt very cathartic. The feedback that I've gotten from the shows is that, you know, the audience feels the same way where it's like, yes, like it's just, we, we missed this. And uh, even if you didn't think you missed it, once you're there, you're, you're like, oh my God, that's right. Like this was such like a the communal experience of music to me is really important. And it always has been. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I've always enjoyed the performing aspect. I love the creating a creative aspect of it too, but like, you know, both the creative and the performance side of it are really important to me. And, and it's been tough not doing it. That said, it's been nice to have a little bit of a break because we've been touring very hard in the years prior to, to COVID, but, uh, I'm excited to do it again. I'm, certainly nervous to do more of it just with the Delta variant and all that stuff. And, you know, it was nice playing these shows in Seattle because Seattle is very pro vaccine and pro mask. So there was a vaccine requirement for the show masks were required and there was zero issues as far as I could tell with it. Like no one complained to me about it. I don't think anyone complained to any of the band social media stuff about it. Like, it was great. I was talking with my, my friend Aaron from Red Fang, who was at the show, and they just canceled the tour this fall because they're like, yes, yeah, you know, in the Northwest, it's one thing, or even just down the West Coast, it's one thing. But you, you go anywhere, you know, off the beaten path and you're dealing with very different attitudes about all that stuff. And, you know, it's you don't want to be in Little Rock, Arkansas and get COVID and then be halfway across the country from your home and sick and, you know, trapped in a van with four or five other people who may or may not be sick. And the 
shows are great. The prospect of touring right now is like a, makes me a little nervous. So the Russian Circle shows we have lined up in October are all in, in major markets on the West Coast. So I feel okay about those. But you know, the idea of booking a full tour right now seems pretty risky. I don't know. I, I understand. It is. Uh, it's challenging when there's you know that level of kind of uncertainty as to where you're going and you know who you're going to see and what's out there. As someone that organizes shows from time to time, I go through similar emotions, but just kind of on a different side in the sense of who am I inviting into a place, and it's it's definitely challenging to work through that and to uh, see uh, the risk on one side and at the other side see the enjoyment and really sort of the positives that people get out of being able to go to a show and, you know, even more so arguably when they know and feel safe in that place to have that kind of uh, experience that they've been missing. I think it really sort of uh, validates the work that musicians do uh, and that the role that they play for these people in filling this sort of void that has existed for so long. It's a tough thing. When we agreed to do these shows, it was you know, in that little window of optimism, right? When everyone was getting vaccinated, <laughs> else I hadn't really taken hold. And then the show, the first show sold out pretty much right away. And the second show was very close to selling out almost immediately after. And then the news started getting worse. And then it was like, okay, do you cancel and like bum everyone out and like bum out the club? Or, you know, do we put more restrictions on how the show goes, which fortunately the club did that on their own regard. So that made it easier for us. But yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's tough because now that I'm a middle-aged man, it's like so many of my friends are the people that actually own these, these places. You know, it's like, they are the club owners, they are the bar owners, they are the restaurant owners. Like my friends are either musicians or artists, or they're people that start off as musicians and artists, but like had side gigs and hospitality or retail or whatever. And then eventually we're like, Oh, and now I own my business. And so it's all these people who are like the most financially vulnerable in this landscape. And, uh, you know, it's really tough because they all take it super, they all take COVID very seriously. They take all the guidelines super seriously, but there's also not the resources to bail them out if things go into another closure. So it's easy to default into just like, all right, cancel all the shows close all the bars, take out only and all that. But it's like, that will devastate like everyone I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like everyone's going to fucking go bankrupt. And it sucks when it's just like, and that's only happening because people aren't taking it seriously and people aren't getting vaccinated or, you know, if, if you choose not to get vaccinated, that's fine. Just don't participate, you know, in society. Like if you want to live off the grid or you know, not interact with people, that's totally 100% fine but you know it's it's the people who opt not to get vaccinated but then want to like attend everything and <laughs> like not wear masks and all that shit where it's like you are the fucking problem and you are the people that are derailing everything and we are literally being held hostage because of your shitty behavior and everyone else gets punished for it and potentially financially ruined just because you're operating on bad information, bad politics, and just like selfish behavior. How is that fair to people who follow the rules and are just trying to make ends meet with the business that they built from the ground up? Like that's fucking, that sucks. So, so yeah. So, you know, I think ultimately I side with the small business owners where it's like, you know, as long as you're following guidelines, like let's try to keep everything open as much as possible. But if people feel like that's too much risk, then people can always opt out and not go to shows or not go to bars and restaurants. That's totally fine. I don't want to live in a world where everything, all of our interactions basically involve like working for Amazon and ordering from Amazon. And that's how life <laughs> works for me. You know, it's like, I don't know, like at some point it's like, I'd rather go play a show and like, you know, get COVID tested before and after and hope for the best. Cause I don't, I don't know. No, that that's interesting. And I do think that there is maybe a larger role that often and increased frequency of testing can play in mitigating some of the issues that we've seen of outbreaks. But that's, uh, you know, 
maybe for our uh, healthcare podcast. <laughs> I th- I, but but it is a, it is an interesting. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but it is sort of an interesting thing because there are other countries where they've put a lot of prominence on testing and in making sure that people are very frequently without COVID, regardless of whether their vaccine whether of their vaccine status. And it is important for people to know that they aren't carrying something. Uh, relatively frequently so that they can go out uh, and do things. And, you know, whether they're choosing to be uh, a little reckless or more safe, it's good for them to understand what they have and what they don't have too. And for society to understand that too, so that our small business owners and uh, essential workers and everyone who's not working for Amazon and, you know, people that work for Amazon too, we care about them, but I, you know, the small business owners, uh, you know, any change in the landscape is felt harder for them than for large firms. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about coffee and beer. Can we do that? Oh, God, please. <laughs> I was curious about the Heartwork Coffee Bar collaboration. I'm I love coffee as well, and I'm was curious about the sort of the start of that collaboration and what that coffee tastes like for those that are able to get their paws on it. Well, Heartwork Coffee Bar is a coffee shop and a, a roaster that's operated and owned by a couple of our friends. So Rob Moran, who played bass in Unbroken and Some Girls and Narrows. And the man's played bass in so many bands at this point, I can't keep track. But, you know, a San Diego legend, amazing human being. And uh, Sam, also from Narrows, A-plus human being, just great people. I mean, they opened a coffee shop named after a Carcass album. So, you know, like, Mm -hmm. good good people. And they take their coffee very seriously. And uh, it's a place that we visit when we're through San Diego on tour, you know, like the people, like the coffee. And, you know, they just pitched an idea of, hey, like we could do a run of Russian Circles coffee beans. And they sent us four or five different beans for us to try out and pick the one that we liked the most. And mm-hmm. they did 200, I think 200 bags of Russian Circles coffee, which is a Oaxacan uh, origin bean. And as much as I love coffee, I'm super bad at all the flavor note stuff. I can't describe it. It's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not a citrusy or acidic, uh, bean at all. It's, it's, it's nice. And it, I suppose it has like some of like the floral fruity elements to it, but you know, I, I'm not good at describing that stuff. It's not like a heavy chocolatey nutty one. It's a more well-rounded bean, I suppose, but it's great. We're super excited to collaborate with them. And yeah, we had we had a Russian Circles Black Pilsner that uh, Wayfinder Beer up in Portland did a limited run of. That was really good too. That was kind of like a Negro Mandelo style beer. Not a Cerveza, but like a Pilsner, but had that kind of dark, malty, roasted vibe to it. Yeah, I always feel a little weird about, you know, having a band name on a product, but coffee and beer are kind of like the two exceptions to the rule. It's like, <laughs> Especially when it's made by my friends, it's like, yeah, let's do that. I'm in, I'm into that. Cross collab on that. I think Wayfinder being in that sort of uh, Denver scene, there, you know, they've done a couple of collaborations with bands before, or are band uh, adjacent, and there are a lot of breweries in that scene that are band adjacent or have members. Have, <laughs> I was going to say members of the roastery, but <laughs> they're uh, you, you you understand what I mean? They're they're very adjacent sorts of uh, worlds. And so do you enjoy the sort of this process of, of connecting with people uh, in this way that are also working with their hands and that are sort of working in sensory to it in a different way? Is this sort of like an enjoyable, I assume it's an enjoyable thing for you. Tell me a little more about like uh, how so. I think anytime someone's making something, <laughs> it's exciting, which sounds like such a, a dumb or basic thing to say, but you know, you know, in our society, in our culture, increasingly it's, you know, the division of labor has rendered us to this point where a lot of times it's your job be something very abstract or very compartmentalized. And I think a lot of times you miss out on the tactile experience and, and the joy of like making something, you know? And so certainly for me, you know, making, making records is like such a satisfying process you know watching friends that like build amplifiers like ben varellen doing varellen amps or watching like the 
folks at Fuzzrocious build pedals or, you know, even on a larger scale, like I've become friends with the people at Dark Glass and watching how that works on that, that large of a scale, it's still like it ultimately comes down to someone having an idea and wanting to see it through. And with, you know, things like coffee and beer, it's the same thing, you know, like the, there's an art to, to brewing and you can wind up with wildly different tasting things, you know, from the same handful of components. And that's, I don't know, that's kind of fascinating to me. And, you know, coffee's the same way where it's, you know, I've had a number of friends that have roasted their own coffee beans and they're, they can be wildly different. And on some level, the, the product is the outcome of their preferences and, and their decisions and their level of expertise. And I think all that's really, I don't know, interesting and fascinating. So yeah, any, any builders, makers, creators, like all that stuff, I think is super exciting and something that's in, like relatable to me. So Yeah. I think especially for like, I relate to that in a way of like people making things that I then put in my body, whether it's music I listen to or whether it's like uh, beverages or food, like there, there's something that uh, because it becomes a part of my being that like, I feel a certain type of uh, connection to the people that make those things because of that. At least I sort of view it as like a very personal relationship that I should have with them because they are doing something that I am then that is becoming a part of my being. That's an interesting perspective because on some level, especially if you're dealing with fringe art or you're dealing with just small batch, whatever, small batch coffee or breweries or whatever, it's, you know, it's something that's a lot of other people aren't experiencing. And so on some level, it's like informing your experience in a way that's more unique. And I don't know, I think that's always kind of fascinating, Mm -hmm. especially because, you know, the way we relate to each other often involves what our shared experiences are. And as the world gets bigger and broader, and it feels like easier to fall into this kind of weird anonymity and isolation. It's like finding other people that appreciate the same things you do or have the same worldview from shared experiences becomes really sort of important. It's a good, a good uh, argument for, you know, supporting small businesses and independent companies and whatnot. One last question before we kind of close out here. And that is in addition to torment and glory, what are some of the things that uh, Sumac and Russian circles are up to as far as the music writing process or uh, maybe gigs going forward? I mean, everyone's planning stuff. It's just a lot of it is in limbo at the moment. But uh, Russian Circles has sort of the most concrete plans. We're going to start recording our new album in a week or two. I head out to Chicago on Monday to a few days of rehearsal before we go into the studio. And it's weird because I haven't even seen our drummer Dave since February of last year. So we haven't been in the same room. But we'll be in the same room for four or five days and then we're going to go and record a new record. So everything's been worked on remotely and it's a uh, kind of exciting. It's like a new way for us to have written a record, even though it's probably the way we should have been writing records this whole time, considering we've always lived apart from each other, but this finally made us learn how to operate that way. So that's exciting. That should be out uh, sometime in 2021, probably in the summertime, I assume. Yeah, we're doing a handful of shows on the West coast, hopefully in October, hopefully Europe in April, May, and then the record will be out and hopefully things will be somewhat normal so we can do the normal tour cycle and all that, but that remains to be seen. Uh, Sumac's in a bit more of a holding pattern just because, well, the Canadian border just reopened. That's been kind of a big obstacle since Nick is Canadian and lives up in Vancouver, but uh, his visa had also expired. So we're in the process of renewing that. So things are kind of we're in the process of getting that renewed, but like the visa process for Canadians is so stupid <laughs> and annoying because the U.S. government wants to know exactly what you're doing um, that requires this visa. So if you're a musician, that means like they need to know the tour dates, but it's like, I don't want to book the tour dates until I have the visa because the visa could take six months, it could take a year, like it's such a crapshoot. So we're tentatively booking a few things here and there just so that we have some things on the record so we can get the visa process approved. But as far as new recordings, we don't have anything lined up there, but you know, we had our latest album come out last fall and we still haven't had a chance to you know do any live shows on that record. So hopefully we'll get to do that sometime soon, but 
just kind of remains to be seen. And that's about it. Awesome. Well, uh, Brian Cook, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me on.